Welcome back. Half of you probably feel like, ugh, we're back. And half of you feel like, yay, we're back, <laughs> right? Well, Happy New Year. It's 2020. It's not only a new year, it's a new decade. Isn't that crazy? It's a new decade. And I think about 2020, it just reminds me of like perfect vision, right? 2020. So maybe this is the, the year that we actually see God in all his majesty and glory, and we see ourselves as we truly are before him, and it can become a year of, of perfect vision. Wouldn't that be amazing to grow in such a way that we just see and know God more intimately? Um, Bob and I, my husband Bob and I, we like to think back. We like to look back, you know, at, on New Year's Eve. It's a fun time to sort of review the year, and we were out driving in the car doing some errands on New Year's Eve, and I just said, hey, honey, tell me, like, what are, like, the 10 things that you're most grateful for in 2019? And so he started to come up with these 10 things. I mean, it was a pretty great year for him. He was unemployed most of 2018, so 2019 he got a job. That's pretty amazing. And uh, we were recounting some things, and then I was recounting some things. I was thinking about um, my son, Adam, his health has just improved in the last few months. You know, he still has muscular dystrophy, but he's eating better, and some flesh is coming back on his bones, and so that's nothing short of a miracle. And my son, Spencer, is in love. And so there's been some really cool things. And so we were counting, and then, and then I just, we just paused and went, you know, every single one of these things that we've been saying are great things that's, that have happened. You know, there's hard things, okay, of course, too, but they were all answers to prayer. They have all been, like, as we were recounting, they were all things that were answers to very specific prayers that we had prayed because we developed this pattern a couple of years ago of getting up every morning, going stumbling in the dark into his office, which is where we pray in our home, and we've just been faithful at this pattern of prayer. And now, like, to see the fruitfulness of God engaging with us in our petitions and in our worship and answering prayer. It's been so amazing. So it's so fun to look back and just see how faithful God has been and to be so encouraged in our prayers. But for me, I also am a very forward-thinking person. So I really like to contemplate the future. I like to look ahead and I like to think about, okay, what kind of changes could I make today that would get me in a better place at the end of this year? And how might I adjust, you know, I like to evaluate and be intentional and think about growth. And I like to think of my goals in sort of in terms of, of um, heart, soul, mind, and strength. So when I, I make objectives for my life, I think about, well, what's a heart objective? Which is, to me is an emotional uh, ad- objective. What is a, a soul objective? That's a spiritual objective. What is a mind objective? That's an intellectual objective. And strength is physical. So this year I was thinking about those things, and I'll just be candid with you. You can keep me accountable. Um, but so heart, I really have want to devote a one day a week to a kind of Sabbath rest. I just read this amazing book on Sabbath called The Rest of God by Mark Buchanan. It's so incredible and felt so just enlivened in this idea of resting in God one day a week and not doing uh, obligatory things, but doing things that bring life. And I want to practice that this year. So that's my emotional objective. 
And my spiritual objective this year is going to be to read through the Bible for, the, for a year. Pastor Adam started something where he said, let's read through the Bible together. I'm like, okay, let's do this. And that takes daily discipline. And then my um, uh, intellectual objective, I'm a doctorate student. <laughs> I have to read a lot of books, but I, I'm going to do that. <laughs> I'm going to read two books at least a month and in pursuit of my degree that I'm working on. And then physical, I want to do better at eating right, exercising, and sleeping adequately so that my body is well-rested and able to do the things that God has asked me to do. So what about you? Do, you? do you have dreams? Do you have aspirations? Do you think about these things? Sometimes we don't even want to start thinking about them because statistics say that on day 16 in January, we've usually broken all of our um, resolutions, so to speak. Um, but, but do you have goals for your life? Do you have dreams aspirations for growth? Have you thought about these types of things? We're going to think about them today. I really believe that God is asking us to draw near to him this year. And James is going to explain to us in this passage how we actually do that. But first, he's also going to talk to us about the the battles over that, the struggles that we endure when we seek to draw near to him. We've got some misplaced passions. And so he's going to be talking to us about that. So as we look at this passage today, I want to talk about it in three different ways. One, in verses 1 through 6, we're going to talk about misplaced passions. In verses 7 through 10, we're going to be reminded of God's invitation to draw near to him, and he will draw near to us. And then in the last section, 11 and 12, James is going to give us a warning about judging other people, and this relates to how we relate with each other in the body of Christ. But what we're going to be encouraged with today is that God meets us with grace as we humbly draw near to him. He's so loving in that way. He meets us with grace as we humbly draw near to him. So let's jump in, starting with James 4, 1 through 6. Now, the last time that we were together in early December, it seems like so long ago, doesn't it? The last time that we were in this passage, James was challenging us, if you remember, about wisdom. And he was describing two kinds of wisdom. He was describing a wisdom that comes from God and a wisdom that comes from the world. And Rhonda brought us the message last time we were together, and she was challenging us to evaluate where do we turn from wisdom? Do we turn to God or we turn to the wisdom of the hour that the word gives us, that the world gives us? And James was reminding us that that God's wisdom actually leads to peace. And if you remember back in chapter 3, we got a really great description about God's wisdom. Chapter 3, verses 17 and 18 reminded us that God's wisdom was first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Scripture affirms to us that Jesus Christ is the wisdom of God and the Prince of Peace. And so he is the one who offers truth and wisdom for our lives. It's unfortunate, actually, that there's this chapter break between James chapter 3 and James chapter 4 because what we studied in chapter 3, what we're studying in chapter 4, it all goes together. It flows together. In, you know, in the original scripture, there was no chapter breaks. Those were added. Um, and so James is actually giving us one sort of continuous thought here about wisdom and as it flows into our passage this week. 
And so if we continue now with our minds pondering this idea, so if we go back and we put into our minds the fact that, that James is talking to us about godly wisdom, and he's talking to us about how godly wisdom leads to peace, that's peace with God and peace with each other, then what James describes next in chapter 4 is describing what happens when our attitudes are not ordered and not peaceful. What happens? We fight with each other. And that happens even within the context of the church. So this is what he says in chapter 4. He says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Now James is writing to a church who is obviously fighting with each other. They are actually not doing what he talked about in chapter 3. Remember all the teaching he gave us about our tongues and how we're to use our tongues speaking to each other? They're actually not doing that well because it says they're quarreling, they're fighting, they're impassioned for anger, they're desiring things that they cannot have. And that's terrible. This is within the church. This is terrible. I mean, we expect this kind of dissension, right, in the sport, on the sports field, in the political arena, in our workplaces, in our neighborhood associations. But we don't expect this kind of quarreling and fighting among brothers and sisters in the context of the church. These are believers, and they are fighting because they have misplaced passions. They're passionate about the wrong things. Their hearts are full of jealousy and envy and selfish ambition. And we know this because we go back to chapter 3, where James was warning them about their misplaced passions. In verse 14, he says, But you have a bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts. Do not boast and be false to the truth. In verse 16, he said, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. Okay, let's talk about jealousy or envy for just a minute. What is it? What is it? The dictionary defines it as a feeling of discontent or resentful longing that's aroused by someone else's possessions or qualities or, or luck. It can be like a desire to have a quality or a possession or an attribute that actually belongs to someone else. Have you ever felt <clears throat> envious of another person? Just felt that sense of real envy? Sometimes those feelings take us by surprise because we never set out to feel envious. We don't ever decide in advance that we're going to feel that way, but it just sort of sometimes just blindsides us. We just feel jealous. This week, I found out that my brother, you know I have one brother who lives in Montana, somebody gave him for Christmas a brand new Suburban. Oh my goodness, a brand new Suburban. Now he is a widower with four kids, but still... And I was like, do you know how badly I would like another car? In fact, I've been driving the same car for 20 years, 20 years. And I have my new car all picked out. I know the color. I know the model. I am so excited someday to have this new car. But I have no money to buy a new car, no, nor do I even need a new car, because the reality is, I drive my son's handicap van everywhere I go. 
My car actually sits in the driveway half the time, but it's still my car. I felt this tinge surprised by jealousy that kind of hindered my ability to celebrate with him. But even more so than that, a couple of years ago, my knee collapsed. And you guys who were here know that I, I couldn't walk very well for a couple of years and couldn't even really, I faked it as best I could for you guys. But at home, I couldn't even walk across the kitchen. I was in so much discomfort and we have stairs in our house and it was so terrible. So you know what started happening in me? I started feeling this really deep sense of jealousy as I watched people walking down the street. And I started to pay attention to how they walked, and I started to covet their knees. That worked really well. And I saw people running on trails, and I started feeling so self-piteous and so grief-stricken over my own, what I felt like was premature aging, that I began really having a sense of jealousy for people whose bodies worked better than mine. And this is what God calls sin. This kind of, of, of jealousy that grips our hearts is sinful. Envy is the kind of sin that actually led Eve to disobey God by eating the fruit from the forbidden tree so that she could become wise. God had already made her wise, but she wanted to be wise like God, and so she longed for something that didn't belong to her, and she she engaged in sin. It's the same kind of jealousy that caused Cain to kill Abel or caused Jacob to steal Esau's birthright. It's the same jealousy that fueled the master plan of Joseph's brothers to sell him into slavery in Egypt, and it's what spurred the religious leaders to send Jesus to Pilate to be crucified. That's what jealousy and envy does to our hearts. Jealousy is that longing for something that isn't yours, and it results actually in being resentful towards the person who has what you have. And honestly... It's a discontentment in not being at peace with living out the story that God's been writing on our lives. At its core, envy is a failure really to trust God and to allow him to meet us with his grace in whatever circumstances he's placed us in. Contentment is actually the cure for envy. And contentment is cultivated when we surrender our frustrations and our disappointments to God. We just tell him, I'm frustrated. I'm disappointed, but Lord, I trust you in this, and I am going to watch for you to pour out your grace on me so that we can work through this together. Jealousy can also become so distorted that it leads people to do unthinkable things like murder. Have we not heard about romantic relationships gone wrong and somebody ends up dead, right? It can lead to these kinds of things. Now, was this happening in the church? I don't know. Were people actually murdering in the church over selfish ambition and, uh, and bitter envy? I don't know. But at least they had these kinds of intentions in their hearts because James is calling out that this is what these sins were leading to in them. And sin is, can be, is dangerous and sinful attitudes can fester within us and lead to sinful actions. The other thing that sin does is it also hinders our prayer life because When we're at war with other people, we're at war with God, and then we don't, it affects how we pray. We don't pray with the right motives, with the right desires. This is what James says. He says, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. 
Like, have you ever had a fight with your husband and then turned your heart to prayer? You know how that goes. It's like, God, I can't believe what he just said to me right now. And you know that he is just selfish and lazy. And I wish he'd just come right now and apologize to me. Amen. You know, you, you know those prayers where you're just not really praying with the right motive. You're praying. Um, but it, it reminds me, actually, of Martha and Mary. When they were entertaining Jesus in their home and Martha became agitated that her sister was not helping her in, um, in her, helping her prepare the meal. And remember that, that Martha said to Jesus, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all this work by myself? Tell Mary to come help me in the kitchen. And Jesus replied, Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. So notice how Jesus pointed out Martha's misplaced passions. He's saying she was worried and upset about the wrong things, and her unmet expectations were threatening to steal away her opportunity to be with Jesus. Jesus, the Son of God, was sitting in her home, and she was worried about the wrong things. How often do our misplaced passions steal away our opportunities to be with Jesus? The reality is we don't always pray with the right heart motives. Um, God sees our hearts. He knows how best to answer our prayers. So where do these misplaced passions come from? Why do we quarrel and fight with people that we love the most? Like our husbands, our family members, our church community, our brothers and sisters? Well, it's because we've rooted our desires in the things of this world. That's what James is telling us. Notice now how James changes his tone. Instead of calling us brothers and sisters, he calls us you adulterous people. He says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So to be adulterous means to be double-minded. It's like to belong to one person in marriage while you're giving your affections to someone else. And we know that in Scripture, God frequently uses the covenant of marriage as a description of his relationship with his people. He is like the groom, and his children, his believers in Christ, are like the bride. And he often uses this picture to show the intimacy of relationship that believers have with him. We have a, an invitation to draw near to him, an intimacy of relationship, a, a unique privilege of being a friend to God, a special kind of love. But then when we want to return to our old life or when we want to relish the passions of our flesh, be in the world and adopt the world's values, when we change our affections or we change our passions for things that are not of God, This is what it looks like to be um, in spiritual adultery, to cultivate a friendship with the world. Now, I'm not talking about the world as in creation. I'm talking about the world as in the world system, the, the ungodly ways in which the world thinks and has its worldly philosophies. When we switch our affections from God to the system of the world and the way it thinks, this is called spiritual adultery. And it happens for believers. He's speaking to believers when we step into a place of rebellion Uh, When we follow our our selfish desires, um, 
when we want to return to our old ways of thinking or our old patterns of entertainment or our old attitudes of defiance against God. But God, God loves us so deeply, and he is jealous for our devotion. He has given us his Holy Spirit. He has sealed us unto himself forever, and he has done that through our faith, by his grace and our faith in Jesus, who, who died, who rose, who ascended. And because we are sealed unto him, we belong to him. And so God actually meets our unfaithfulness with his grace. Look at verse 5. He says, or do, you, do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says? He yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. But he gives us more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So the first step in drawing near to God in 2020 is to carefully examine your own life in 2019. Actually, to look back. Start with looking back. Take some time to reflect on your spiritual journey. Maybe grab a journal and give some time to reflect about the highs and the lows. What were your greatest spiritual victories? What were your greatest spiritual challenges? It's helpful to pray a prayer of examination where you come before God in careful reflection, seeking to foster intimacy with him. And I just put together these very honest questions, and I'll send them to you. So by the time you get home tonight, they'll be in your email box. So you don't have to write them all down. But I thought, here are some questions that we could ask ourselves as we reflect back on the last year and seek to, to see where we need to confess some things to the Lord. So what wrong attitudes do I need to bring before God in confession? Lord, show me. What have I said to someone in anger recently? Who have I gossiped about or judged unjustly? What selfish, selfish motives drive my daily schedule? Where has my heart grown bitter, prideful, or entitled? What is luring me away from God and tempting me to believe a worldly lie? Who am I in a contentious relationship with, and what is my part in that? Confession of sin is the first step in drawing near to God. Look back in careful examination and bring your hearts to God with humility and ask him to show you. If you'd like, there's Psalm 139 is a great psalm to just pray when you don't know where to start. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there be any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. God is so faithful when we pray a prayer like that to show us. And he's also so gracious in that he doesn't show us at all. He shows us just enough, just enough to bring us before him in humility and confession. And he's also so gracious in that he meets us with grace. He doesn't meet us ever with shame. Jesus paid all the shame on the cross. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So we can confess to him and be met with grace, never with shame, we got to deal with shame, our own inner dialogue of shame, and just confess that as well. To say, Lord, I don't come to you in shame. I come to you in grace. And he meets us with his forgiveness and love. Well, next, James invites us to look up in a spirit of repentance. He says in verse 7, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. 
Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. So James is challenging us now to, to respond to God's grace in seven ways that are going to help us draw near to God. And do you notice that it, it begins and ends with humility? And so if we've spent some time looking back and confessing, we're already going to be in a very humble posture before the Lord as he then invites us to draw near to him through these seven kind of exhortations. Um, so I would like to share them with you. Number one is he says, submit to God. Submit. That's a humble um, position to come to God in surrender. Actually, it's a military term, and it pictures an army lieutenant who falls into his proper rank behind his general and follows his orders. And in the spiritual realm, we know that, that God is engaged in a battle, and he is victorious over sin and evil, and so we benefit from aligning ourselves from him. We don't want to get out in front of God. That's a dangerous place to be. We want to bring ourselves behind him, walk in his footsteps, be shielded and protected by him. He's the one who's going to have the victory, and we share in that as we align ourselves with him. So we submit to him. Actually, it's a grace to be able to submit to God. And one way that we do this also is by resisting the devil, which is the second thing. So the way that we resist the devil is to submit to God, because God is the one who is victorious over the devil. I think about the temptation that Jesus encountered in the wilderness. And when he, when he was in this time of temptation, he resisted the devil by proclaiming the truth of God's word. He was able to quote accurate scripture back to the devil to resist him. He, was at, he chose to obey the truth of God's word in order to resist the devil. And, of course, we know on the cross he had victory over the devil once and for all and Though we're still engaged in battles until the final judgment comes, Jesus has won victory over Satan. But the devil is still a real enemy, and we are living in a kingdom that he is prince over. And his tactic all through Scripture is temptation. That's how he likes to work. In fact, the Bible calls him the tempter. Um, his goal is to find ways to separate God and his people, and he does that really victoriously when he tempts us into sin, because sin tears apart and separates. But James points out that if we resist the devil, he will actually free, flee from us. The power of God in us through the Holy Spirit is greater than the power of the world. First John 4, 4 says, the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. In your lesson this week, you got to go over Ephesians 6, reminding of the armor of God that has been provided for you in Christ. So God provides the ability for us to resist the devil so that he will flee. Third is to draw near to God. Now remember, James is speaking to believers. And so this isn't a call to draw um, near to him positionally, because in Christ, we are as near as we can be in Christ. We have been saved by grace through faith. You, any of you that were in our Ephesians study a couple of years ago, you'll remember that Ephesians 1 gave us this, this big picture of who we are in Christ. We are chosen and forgiven and redeemed, and it goes on to say that we're beloved and we're sealed in the Spirit. This is who we are in Christ, and so we can't get any closer to God than that. Positionally, we're close. 
But James is inviting us to draw near to him relationally, to come before him in a posture of humility, to experience closeness with him. He's actually inviting us to repent. Now, the first step in drawing near to God, of course, is recognizing the things that we need to confess, the sins, the ways that we've fallen short. But the second step in turning near to God is to repent, to actually turn away from those things and to vow never to go back. The definition of repentance is um, a personal, absolute, ultimate, unconditional surrender to God as sovereign, which includes not only sorrow and regret, but an actual turning 180 degrees away from sin and turning towards God. So the truth is that repenting of sin is the second step in drawing near to God. Then the next four points that he gives us actually tell us how do we do that? How do we repent? And the first thing he says was, is you need to cleanse your hands. Cleanse your hands. Whatever that sin is, stop it. Quit it. That's what we tell our children, right? When they get into trouble, we say, just stop it. That's what God says to us. Just cleanse your hands. Be done with it. I often pray that sin in my life or sin in the life of people that I love, that it will become so bitter and despicable that they'll just spit it out with distaste, like not want any part of it. That's what we need to get to the place that sin is that disgusting that we will actually be willing to turn from it and flee back to God. So it's what he's saying, just quit it. And then he says, purify your hearts, which means don't be double-minded. Remember earlier in James in our study, he was talking about what it means to be double-minded It means um, to be disintegrated. So to be integrated means to be full of integrity, to be the same person everywhere you go, not fragmented, uh, not different people, not saying one thing and doing something else. That's to be double-minded. So he's saying, don't be double-minded. Purify your hearts. Cleanse your mind. Stop thinking thoughts that cultivate bitter jealousy or selfish ambition or fuel your sense of entitlement because the world will tell you that you're entitled, that, you know, you only live once. It's all about you. Just do it. Those are messages from the world. There's not messages from God. So he's saying, fill your heart and mind with things that integrate you into who you are in Christ. The devil wants to to tempt us away. He wants to inflame our sense of self-righteousness. So if we're going to resist being double-minded and actually purify our hearts, then the next thing he says is that you've got to mourn over your sin. He's like, you've got to feel sad and remorseful about your sin. Don't take it lightly or make excuses for it. People who befriend the world don't take sin seriously because the world doesn't call anything sin. Everything is permissible. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. But God calls certain things sin because they lead to death. That's why. Not because he's a killjoy. It's because he knows how he's created us. And when we sin, it leads to disruption of relationships and fellowship with God, disintegration of who we are, and ultimately death. And he loves us. And he knows the end from the beginning. And he says, you got to see your sin adequately, and you need to mourn over it because it's going to lead to death. And pride is a sin. And God humbles the proud. So a wise person will mourn her sin and then humble herself before God. And that's the last, the last insight. Humble yourself. And 
God says, you humble yourself and you're not only going to receive grace, but actually God is going to exalt you. As you humble yourself before God, he exalts you. So the truth is that God meets us with his grace when we humble ourselves before him. God meets us with his grace when we humble ourselves before him. It's so ironic, actually, because confession, which is looking back, and repentance, which is looking towards God, looking up, actually leads to joy. You don't think of it that way. You think, oh, confession, repentance. I'm going to be so sad and sorrowful. But actually, it leads to joy because God meets us with his grace by forgiving us and then setting us free to live in intimacy with, with himself. I mean, we are invited to live in an intimate, close fellowship with God Almighty, the one who created the heavens and the earth, who holds the solar system spinning in his hands, who has a plan for human history from start to finish, who has chosen a moment in time for us to be born, who is watching over our lives, who has sent his son to earth to save us from sin and death, who has sealed us with his spirit so that every day of our lives we have God living with us and in us, who has given us the church, a community, to be encouraged and strengthened in our faith, a witness to go out into the world and call others into this believing relationship with him. I mean, we have... We have victory over temptation and, and evil from the devil. That's astounding. This is the amazing relationship that we have been invited into through Jesus Christ. And so drawing near to God is an invitation to live in strength and power and hope in 2020. It's helpful to contemplate these seven challenges this year, and I'm going to give you some questions to think about. Again, I'll send them to you. Um, Because remember, the whole motive of James is to grow us up. He's trying to mature us in our faith. So here are some things to ask yourself as you seek to kind of bring yourself before him in a time of repentance. Ask yourself this, how has my drive for independence and self-sufficiency thwarted God's leadership in my life? In what part of my life is God asking me to trust him this year? Some of you have lost jobs. Some of you have got health issues. Some of you have wayward children. Some of you have friends you can't imagine ever coming to faith. Where is the part of your life that God is asking you to trust him this year? What or who is tempting me towards ungodly thinking or behaviors? What would it look like for me to resist and trust God for victory over this area of my life? Maybe it's an addiction. Maybe it's a friend who's calling you into a bad direction. What is it? Is there something in my life that's prohibiting me from drawing near to God? What is it? Am I willing to walk away from it and turn towards God? What do I need to stop doing and receive forgiveness from God? What thoughts do I need to stop thinking in order to become integrated in my inner self? What tears do I need to cry over my sinful attitudes and behaviors? What grace, love, and power do I need to receive from God as I draw near to him this year? Just tell him, I need your grace, I need your help, I need your strength. Can't do this without your grace. He will provide. And lastly, James is warning us that as we look ahead, 
We need to be very careful about how we speak about other people. He says in verse 11, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers and sisters. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Now, if we're honest with ourselves before God, the motivation of our hearts most of the time when we're speaking judgmentally about someone else is usually pride, right? We elevate our thinking, our ways, our control issues, and we elevate that over someone else, and it's in a spirit of pride. It's no wonder God hates the sin of pride. You know, it was pride that led Satan and his band of angelic followers to rebel against God and be thrust out of heaven. It's actually pride that fuels hatred, bullying, war, terrorism, genocide. It's pride. Pride is the opposite of humility. So if we want to draw near to God in 2020, we need to really guard our hearts. We need to look out for the spirit of pride. We need to pay attention to what comes out of our mouth and make sure that we're not being critical or slanderous or gossiping about another person. Now, there is a place for godly discernment. Discernment is one of the fruits of wisdom. Godly discernment is, is, does not violate the greatest commandment, but pride really does. So be thinking when you're tempted to say something or you're tempted to use your words in a way, think about, does what I'm going to say actually express love to my neighbor, or is it tearing them down? Because godly discernment, there's truth that can be helpful, truth in love. But there's a difference when it's rooted in pride. Even the same words can have a different motive. So watch over your heart, he's saying. Discernment builds up while judgment tears down and destroys. So approaching God and others with humility is the third step in drawing near to God. Only God can judge with perfect knowledge and with righteous intentions. And we will mess it up if we try because our thinking is tainted with sin. Our motives are tainted with sin. So we need to pray for godly discernment. Pray in the areas of your life that you've been entrusted, like your families, your marriages, your children, your workplaces, your neighborhoods. There are all kinds of realms in your life where you have been entrusted to be a part, to bring your gifts and talents, to be a light for Christ. Pray that God gives you godly discernment in all of those places, but the resist the devil who'll want to tempt you into criticism and judgment and slander and disparaging remarks about another person. And especially in the church, because the church is meant to be a shining light out into the world of God's upside-down kingdom. You know, it's supposed to be the place where people say they will know that we are Christians by our love. What do they see when in the church, a church like James is writing to, that is, not, is, is full of bitter envy and jealousy and fighting and quarreling and even murder? We don't want to be that kind of church. Here's the good news. Humility is the way that we draw near to God in 2020. And the beautiful thing about it, it's difficult, but it's difficult because it takes, it's a heart posture. It's coming to him in surrender, in submission, being able to say, I'm going to confess my sins, I'm going to repent my sins, of my sins, but I'm going to come to you, Lord, and surrender my heart to you in humility. And then he'll meet us with his grace. 
But I'm so grateful that we don't have a God who gives us a big to-do list to say, if you want to draw near to me, you need to serve me, you need to do this for that person, you need to check all of these boxes, you need to be this kind of person. There's no to-do list. There's no resolutions. There's no big goals. He's saying, just come to me in humility. Come to me in authenticity. Come to me with your whole self. Draw near to me, and I will draw near to you. I will pour my grace on you, and we will have the deepest experience of nearness you've ever, you've ever had. Isn't that beautiful? That's, that's our God. So I want to encourage you to look up, look back, look up, and look forward with caution as we engage with each other. Let's, would you stand and let me pray as we go out? Father, we want to just come before you and tell you that we are in awe of who you are. It's hard to wrap our minds around a God who is powerful, who is masterful, creative, purposeful, and so loving, so gracious, so kind and compassionate, who has truth in the palm of his hands who loved us so much that sent his son into this world to die on a cross for our sins that we would never have to approach you with shame and guilt. We're forgiven, we're welcomed, we're beloved. It's astounding. So we come to you and just want to say thank you. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for your word which tells us who we are. Thank you for your invitation to see things the way you see things. Thank you for this gift of faith that we have by your grace in Jesus. And we also want to say we're sorry, Lord. We're sorry for all the ways that we've fallen short. We're sorry for how we've let the world influence our thinking and our passions and our desires. We're sorry for all the ways we keep wanting to return to our old life and our old thought patterns. Lord, would you help us? Would you pour out your grace on us right now? Would you help us in this year to really grow and mature in our faith? Would you help us to see you more clearly so that we can just engage more nearly to your heart? Would, we, would you show us yourself and encourage us in our faith and help us, Lord, to be steadfast and faithful women? We love you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.